Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Celine Jones, is a clinical psychologist and psychometrician. In a wide-ranging discussion, we cover a number of topics, including how to guide people to make the best decisions to serve them during these pandemic times. In that regard, she says, It's okay to make a mistake. It's okay if you do something and then realize after the fact, oh, whoops, maybe I shouldn't have done that. It's okay. We're all just trying to figure this out together. And we're all going to make mistakes and nobody's going to be perfect. And that's okay. My guest on the podcast today is Celine Jones. Celine, I'm delighted to be spending time with you today. You're a psychologist and I'm trying to understand the context in which you came to psychology. What was the fascination with psychology for the young Celine? Uh, well, I've always been interested in, in measurement and assessment. I was a, kind of a bit of a math nerd originally, <laughs> but that whole like measurement and assessment piece uses a lot of math. And so it, it was kind of a nice marriage of helping people feel better, you know, the psychology piece, but then including, including the statistical piece there. So that's, that's why I was drawn to that piece. But, but it was mostly because I wanted to help people feel better. You know, I knew that, okay, depression is a you know, huge public health issue. So is anxiety. And so I wanted to, I wanted to help with that. And I wanted to, to help people feel better because when they feel better emotionally, it helps their physical health as well. Um, and so that's why I was first drawn to psychology. And then when I was doing uh, my, I did my um, undergraduate work, my bachelor's degree at the University of Washington, and uh, I was doing a research project where we were trying to rate the reaction of patients. We sometimes call them clients um, in psychology, uh, but the reaction of the clients to the rationale for the therapy. So this was cognitive behavioral therapy in this case. And that's very important because if somebody doesn't buy into the rationale, then they're not going to, you know, they're not going to buy into the therapy overall. But we found that our measures weren't reliable. <laughs> and that was a huge issue. You know, I would go and rate a, a videotape and then, you know, one of my, you know, one of my fellow students would go and rate a videotape and we would have completely different answers. You know, like one of us would think that this, this client loved the therapy, the other would think that they hated it. <laughs> And so that was kind of my first introduction to the importance of measurement. Uh, and I liken it to traveling. So if I want to get to Portland, I got to know where I'm at to begin with. I got to know if I'm in Seattle or if I'm in Australia, because that makes a huge difference in terms of which direction I go, what type of transportation I take and that sort of thing. So in order to figure out what sort of treatments people need, what their diagnosis is and that sort of thing, we need to have good measurement and we have to good, have good assessment of the patient. So that was what drew me to psychology because psychology is all about, you know, really getting to know like, okay, what's going on with this patient, assessing the patient, you know, measuring how the patient feels along all these different dimensions. So it seemed kind of like a perfect fit. Um, that math, the math was always a good, <laughs> and the statistics was always a good selling point. We hear this a lot with psychologists that their first love was maths which is very interesting to me. And I, and I know this from personal experience because my son's doing psychology and he talks about it in the same way. He says he loves maths. And I never understood that because maths seems to be the antithesis of art, which is what human interaction is all about. So can you explain to us what is the connection between the two? That is a good question. <laughs> um, so 
when we're dealing with psychology, we're dealing with human behavior. We're dealing with behavior. We're dealing with emotions. And we're dealing with a lot of individual differences. So everybody's a little bit different. So like what's important to me for my quality of life is not what's important to you for your quality of life, that kind of thing. And that requires some really complex statistics. It's not like a one-to-one relationship where if you show me like a green square, I'm going to have the exact same reaction to it as like the next three people who see that green square. And so the statistical models for psychology have to be very complicated. They have to account for that error. They have to account for those differences in terms of how each person responds to it. So that's one reason why we have to, I mean, psychologists in general, but especially clinical psychologists have to, we have to understand the statistics. We have to be able to interpret them. And we also have to understand like, what do they mean for our individual patients? So if I give somebody a test and there are these norms and statistics about this test, I have to understand what those mean and what the implication is and translate it to, okay, how does that change how I practice in this situation, given this test result? So it, I mean, you know, obviously people with, people are very different. There are some clinical psychologists who don't like math. We don't all love math, but I would say a lot of us do. And so that's, that's one of the main reasons is that people are so complex. And so we have to have these statistical models that can basically account for all of that complexity in the human experience. And this is key, isn't it? That we assume that we know what each other is thinking, but that's not a safe assumption. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I I see that a lot where it it almost seems like sometimes doctors and patients are almost talking past each other. And it's because they're talking about different, different things. And I recently wrote a, a piece for the Society of Participatory Medicine's blog on healthcare being a meeting of two experts. And when I go into the therapy, the therapy room or the therapy Zoom room, as it is now, I always, I, I kind of approach it as I'm, you know, I'm the expert on you know, diagnosis and treatment of anxiety and depression, but that patient is the expert on their experience and what they're feeling. So I might recommend a treatment. I might think, okay, this treatment, yeah, this is absolutely what's going on with this patient. But then it turns out I don't know everything about that patient's experience. And then they let me know about something that basically shows me that that treatment plan that I thought was going to be absolutely perfect is actually not what's going to work for this patient. There's just no way that it, that it, that they can actually participate in that or it's not actually what's going to be helpful. So I, I think that idea of, you know, each of the healthcare provider or the clinician and the patient, they each have these different perspectives. And it's not that one's right or wrong. It's just that they're different and you need both to actually help improve patient outcomes. It's not like one's better or one's right, or, you know, one should be considered more important or that kind of thing. It's, it's nothing like that. It's you need both perspectives. And I found when I started approaching therapy that way, it actually seemed to work a lot better and when I try to go into the therapy room and act like, oh, I'm this expert and I'm going to tell you what to do and this is what you need to do to improve your depression, your anxiety, it didn't seem to help my patients as much versus when I approached it as like, okay, I'm going to be learning about them. They're going to be learning about what I have to say. And it's going to be more of this collaboration rather than you know, just this, I'm going to be an expert telling them what to do. So I think kind of having that, that kind of shift in approach can be really, really helpful. The really interesting place where 
we sometimes disagree on numbers or we fail to communicate numbers is understanding the risk of particular conditions. So when we're talking to patients about the risk of, let's say, cancer, we're telling them something that may seem to us like a minuscule risk, one in 5,000 people. Mm -hmm. What the patient is hearing is something quite different. And mm -hmm. often that difference leads them to behave in ways that are unhelpful. Do you want to say something about that? And of course, I want to give a nod to the whole whole scientific literature on health communication and, and, and that kind of thing. But what's important here is that difference of perspective is that so from the physician perspective, you know, one in 5,000, that's, that's really small. Versus for that patient, that outcome, let's say it's something like stroke or something like that, like, you know, say st the stroke risk from birth control pills or something like that. You know, the overall risk might be relatively small, but for that patient, that might seem like a, a very dire outcome. They absolutely positively do not want to have that happen. And so for them, what might seem like a very small risk to somebody else to them is still unacceptable because it's, it's such a dire outcome. So it's kind of a different weighting almost. So for the physician, the risk of that is, you know, they might downweight it compared to what the patient is experiencing. But for that patient, for whatever reason, their life experience, maybe it's the resources they have right now, maybe for them, the, the thought of the recovery from the stroke is very difficult, whatever it is, for them, they want to avoid that outcome at all costs. And so for them, they, you know, they upweight the importance of avoiding that risk and trying not to have that happen. So yeah, again, it's, it's that kind of difference of perspective. And so I think, you know, especially as healthcare providers, we have to be very careful sometimes about the words we use um, and saying like, you know, oh, this is, this, you know, this is very tiny risk. You know, this is not very, you know, you don't have to worry about this at all. But for that patient, that might actually be, that might actually be a big risk. So it's important to get an assessment of, okay, what's important to this to this patient specifically. Some patients might be like, oh, one in 5,000, so it's not gonna happen. But for another patient, they might actually be worrying about it. So, so it's important to, to keep that in mind that the patient might have a very, very different perspective. Because again, they know the best about what their life is like and what they'll be able to, to cope with and what kind of vision they have for their life and what they would like to have happen. So I put you on the spot and say that if you're faced with a patient who says that's far too great a risk and I'm not going to accept that advice, what would you do next? If a patient has a, has a, a strong reaction like that, where they say like, you know, absolutely, you know, I, I cannot accept that risk, then it's like, okay, I have to work from that universe of options. This is, this is what we have available. And so then I would have to figure out, okay, what are they, what are they willing to do? So what are the things that they are, that they are willing to try? Um, so I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist. That's one of my therapeutic approaches. I use a few other things like mindfulness as well in therapy. But if somebody was just saying like, oh, you know, absolutely. I, you know, I, I cannot do this particular aspect of cognitive behavioral therapy. I'd be like, okay, you know, clearly that's not an option. You know, if you ever change your mind, let me know but I would try and figure out what are they willing to do? You know, and I'd ask them, okay, tell me about what you, you know, what would work for you or what you think might be possible. Sometimes we do this menu of options 
uh, technique where we'll list out like up to three different things that that might be possible. If none of those work, then we might do like another three or something, something like that. So for example, if I was trying to have somebody change, let's say their exercise, but they're like, oh, absolutely not. I'm not exercising. <laughs> I'm not doing that at all, which I have definitely had patients say that to me. I'd be like, okay, that's, you know, that's fine. Let's figure out what you can do. Here are some other things that you can work on. So depending on, you know, what their goals are, what's important to them, what kind of outcomes they would like to see for their care, then I might go on, okay, you know, what are some changes to your diet that you can make? You know, can you get a sit-stand desk or that sort of thing? Try and find something else that they might be willing to do, even if they're not willing, willing to do, you know, maybe what my first recommendation was. So it does take a little bit of time to figure out, okay, what can we do? But usually, usually I can find something. I think we can both agree that the person whose perspective matters the most is the person who has to put the energy into whatever the recommendation is. And if they're not prepared to commit to that at that time, perhaps there are other options. And that becomes fairly straightforward where you're offering a treatment like the oral contraceptive for the situation that you're talking about. It becomes more problematic when the discourse is around something that you know is doing harm. So if they if you say to somebody the risk of you having a stroke or a heart attack if you carry on smoking is x which is in our mind would be very high let's say less than 1 in 100 and they turn around and say well my grandma used to smoke right until she was as you classically hear until she was 99 and nothing happened to her how do you deal with that situation so it's a slightly different approach that I take with that. I've done a little bit of smoking, uh, behavioral smoking cessation, cessation work. And sometimes it's just finding out what is, what is important to that patient. So tobacco smoking affects so many different things. So that, you know, there's stroke risk, there's cardiovascular risk, there's, you know, skin appearance, that sort of thing. <laughs> I have actually, yeah, I have actually had a patients who wanted to improve their appearance. So that was one of their motivations for not smoking. And so I was like, I went with it. <laughs> for some of them, it was the cost. Cigarette smoking can be very expensive, especially if they're smoking one, two, three packs a day. That can get a little pricey. And so sometimes that can be, that can be a, big, uh, a big motivation. Um, but it's basically finding out whatever, whatever outcome is important to that, to that patient. Because like you said, ultimately, they have to do the work. They have to take the treatment. We can't do it for them. Even in therapy, it's in psychotherapy, it's still the same thing. It's like, I can't do the work for them. I help them do the work and I support them in doing the work. And I guide them, but I can't actually do it, do it for them. And so we have to figure out what their why is and what their motivation is and what's going to help get them get them through it. So, you know, for one person, stroke might be, avoiding stroke might be very, very motivating. For another person, you're not getting lung cancer. For another person, being able to rejoin their running group. Maybe that's, that's what they would like to do. So it's, it's really about exploring like, okay, what are some things that, that they could have some benefits that they could have if they quit smoking, for example, or whatever, whatever it is for those harmful behaviors that we that we're trying to help people decrease 
And of course, for some patients, it's none of the above because they're not in the right place to to deal with that issue. And that's becoming increasingly an issue in the world in which we now live. So since the pandemic began, a lot of what we consider to be really important to us is now almost paling into insignificance compared to the daily things that we're having to cope with, whether that's the risk of the pandemic, whether it's the financial stress, whether it's the risk of being furloughed from our jobs, whatever it happens to be. And I know that one of your interests is financial worry and anxiety on the outcomes on people with life-limiting illness and other illness, chronic illness. Do you want to say a little bit about that? What is the research telling us about the world that we now inhabit compared to two, three years ago? Financial anxiety has definitely increased. We can say that, say that for sure. And financial hardship, financial hardship in general. So not just financial anxiety, but also, you know, difficulty paying for bills, bills going to collections, those sort of things. Those sort of financial impacts are, have definitely become, uh, become more frequent since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And research that I've published, but also a lot of other people have published as well, has shown that the more financially anxious people are, the more financial hardship they experience, the worse their quality of life. They're more likely to have elevated depressive symptoms, elevated anxiety, that sort of thing. They're less able to engage in health behaviors. So things like cancer screening, cigarette smoking, that sort of thing. So we know it has all these like far ranging, wide ranging impacts on people's health. So there is this concern that due to the economic impacts of the pandemic, that some of these things might start to might start to get worse as well, that it might have these these impacts on quality of life, on mental health, that sort of thing. I reminded as we talk about the book Scarcity, which came out of Princeton University some years ago, in which they talk about tunneling that when you're faced with a particular problem, that you cannot see beyond that problem. Now, this financial problem, financial anxiety could be one of those problems. So I want to talk a little bit about the context in which we now practice as healthcare practitioners, whether that's doctors, psychologists, whatever. We seldom ask, routinely ask about financial stress in a consult. It's usually all about the symptoms and the impact Mm -hmm. of the illness on the patient. We don't have time, seemingly, to talk about that. What is your perspective on that? So I do most of my research in in cancer, although I do, of course, study um, study other conditions and also study preventive behaviors as well. But uh, there is a move uh, within oncology to try and start screening for financial hardship more generally not so much financial anxiety, and then try and refer people to other resources, to financial aid, sometimes to social work or financial navigators who can help them figure out, okay, how do I pay for this? Make sure they're signed up for the right health insurance, which is big. But it does require, it does require an investment. It does require quite a bit of, of work on the provider side. You know, I know that physicians already having uh, to keep up with the pandemic and the, the increased workload from that. So I think having other personnel who can screen for that and who can refer them or provide those, those resources 
um, is probably a more feasible way to go as far as addressing financial hardship within the healthcare system, just because that's more likely to be implemented. It does require, of course, some upfront costs to you know, bring those staff on board and, and that kind of thing. So, so there's that, but then there's also trying to you know, generally improve the economic and the social situation of the population in general. So what policies do we have? You know, what kind of worker protections do we have? Wages, that sort of thing. You know, healthcare costs, what is insurance or health insurance required uh, to cover? I am in the United States, so there was quite a bit of variability in terms of what health insurance will cover. Some health insurance covers a lot, some health insurance does not cover a lot or covers very little. And so trying to plug those gaps so that at the patient level, we're not seeing those impacts, we're not seeing those, you know, high health care costs, those $10,000, $20,000 medical bills, that sort of thing. But then also referring people to more resources. I think that's, those are some potential approaches, kind of taking a multi-pronged approach to to try and address this from from at least a healthcare healthcare perspective. Of course, the issue is that there is growing inequity in healthcare, not just in the U.S. but across the world. So, populations that are underprivileged in a variety of ways are suffering more from the effect of the things that we're talking about. The poor lifestyle choices and so on. So 80 to 90% of people are overweight or obese. Smoking is very much now a habit that takes place in some social circles more than others. And there are a variety of others. And yet those costs are borne not just by the patients, but by society in general, because where you have this happening, you also have the loss of productivity, loss of time on at work, loss of a whole range of other things that we as a society value, as taxpayers we value because that's when people pay taxes, the economy thrives. So there is an incentive for society itself to do what you're describing, which is to deal with the issues in a more sophisticated way in terms of dealing with financial stress and the other stresses so that people are able to see beyond the tunnel, as it were, to deal with their, particularly their preventive health choices. Are you seeing any of that at the moment? You were talking there about oncologists' clinics now, including financial advisors. Are we seeing more of that? Uh, definitely in, in oncology. As far as I know, not so much in, in some of the other healthcare spaces, although, you know, it's not like it's zero across the board, but there's a big push in, in oncology because a lot, of, a lot of research has come out showing that financial hardship has a huge impact on people to the point that uh, people with cancer um, have shorter lives if they have more financial hardships. So I think that's why it's been such a strong push within oncology, there's definitely some some motivation at the policy level. So, you know, things like the no surprises bill here in the United States, where they're trying to reduce those big surprise medical bills where somebody goes for emergency care and then they get a, a $10,000 bill because somebody was out of network and that sort of thing. So there's definitely a push to, to have those uh, policy changes 
The one thing, though, is that we have to be careful because sometimes, like with the No Surprises bill, it, it's mostly for people that have health insurance. So it doesn't necessarily help people that don't have health insurance or that sort of thing, um, or doesn't have as much of an impact for them. So there's still definitely a lot of work to do. I think there's a lot of interest and a lot of motivation, but then trying to do each of the specific steps, the actual concrete action has been understandably a lot harder. And of course, within the context of the pandemic, that makes it harder as well, because we're trying to deal with a pandemic at the same time that we're trying to address this huge societal issue of financial hardship. One of your other areas of interest, Celine, is fear of cancer and healthcare use and also the effect on cancer prevention. Do you want to say something about that? Because here we are in a society that's becoming more anxious and more fearful in a variety of ways. Are we seeing less healthcare use and is there a knock-on effect of that? Definitely for cancer screening, we're seeing a lot less huge decrease in cancer screening, um, partially because of fear from the pandemic, which is very understandable. It's very understandable that people are concerned about that or concerned about going in for these screenings and you know, potentially getting COVID or that sort of thing. However, though, don't public service message, <laughs> do not put off your cancer screenings. Um, there are ways to, you know, there are ways to do that, you know, safely and, and protect you and everyone else from COVID and that sort of thing. But we are starting to see, to see a bit of an effect of, of that where, you know, the cancers might not be caught as early as they were, as they maybe would have been before. And as you probably know, you catch cancer earlier, it's much more treatable, much greater odds of of surviving. We do have to be careful about balancing understandable fears about cancer, COVID, that sort of thing, with these preventative health behaviors and with treatment, treatment as well. So making sure that you know, people are not foregoing their medical care um, because down the road, it's only going to, to get worse if people are, are foregoing medical care. So taking those concerns seriously, absolutely, and you know, finding ways for them to still engage in, in health care and still have access to health care while still protecting them from COVID. When you and I are talking doctor and patient, it's easy to say, well, what matters to you, Celine, is this. So let's talk about that. Whereas here we're talking to an entire population. And I'm thinking the problem with COVID is we are not able to communicate those risks in a way that is meaningful to enough people for them to wear the mask and get vaccinated. It's hard to tailor a message when it's a public health message that's going out to everyone. And so you know, definitely being, you know, being honest and consistent with communication, I think, is important because uh, people notice those those things. And so I think being honest, you know, being con- consistent, being willing to say, I don't know, sometimes, you know, when somebody gets asked a question, they're like, I don't know, that can be very helpful. It's hard to say, I don't know, or I'm not sure, or I'll have to get back to you on that. But it also communicates a certain amount of, of humility. And that helps, because then people are like, okay, you're, you're going to, when you're going to tell me something, it's, it's going to be the truth. So I think just trying to trying to take that approach trying to be honest consistent and when i say consistent i should probably clarify that that doesn't mean you know one size fits all <laughs> I, i'm a big proponent of 
not 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 doing the one size fits all sort of thing. But even if it means saying, okay, for this group of people, maybe consider this, but then you also have to consider consider this. Like so for okay, so for most people, you know, maybe surgical masks, try and get surgical masks or KN95s, but for this group of people, make sure you get those those N95 equivalents, that sort of thing. I'm trying to it's okay if there's a little complexity in in the message and that and that sort of thing, but so that's not what I mean when I say consistency. It doesn't mean like simple or you know same thing for everybody. Just trying to be consistent in terms of like what you're saying and you know updating is needed, of course, because as we've learned in this pandemic, everything changes so quickly. So sometimes saying, okay, that's what we thought then. We have new information. This is what we think you should be doing. Should be doing now. Because even just acknowledging that can be really powerful for people, just acknowledging that like, okay, we have new information, so this is why we think that it should be, should be X, Y, and Z now instead of A, B, and C. The problem though, Celine, is that we're in the hands of politicians and for a politician to turn around and say, I don't know, is not a palatable thing because they have to know, they have to be certain, they have to be the strong leader of one kind or another. So... They're getting the public health message across within this environment where we're getting our information from social media and from the news is much more difficult. Do you have any words of wisdom for us on that? I think definitely having the public health, the public health experts out there and giving these messages uh, can be helpful because they're the ones that know the, you know, that, that know the science and are you know, better able to interpret the science. And so that that means that they're going to be better able to answer questions or you know clarify messages and and that sort of thing. I, I do acknowledge that it is difficult for politicians. There is this pressure to be that decisive leader, to always have the right answer, and uh, you know just swoop in at the last minute and <laughs> and uh, and rescue people. So I want to acknowledge that that is that is challenging, and I also want to acknowledge that sometimes it can it can be hard to do the right thing. And to you know acknowledge uncertainty and to acknowledge when things change, and that can be hard. And sometimes just acknowledging that that you know what this is going to be hard. This is going to be difficult for me to change gears. That's something that I, in therapy, I work with people a lot on. Is it's going to be hard to confront your anxiety. It's going to be hard to face this, but in the long term, it's going to be better. So in the short term, the truth is is very difficult, but in the long term, it's better. In the long term, it will you know, work out better. It will help more people. Or if, if I'm in the therapy session, you know, it'll help this individual patient more in the long term. So it is really hard to get over that initial hump, that initial hump of anxiety, that initial hump of discomfort. Some politicians have been very decisive about what needed to happen. Often, that's worked out quite well, but sometimes it hasn't because the virus will out regardless of the politics is in a particular place. And so even where you've had hard lockdowns, as here in Australia, you, you do have the virus back in the community. But at an individual level, when we're talking to the average person, you're talking to them about wearing a mask, getting vaccinated, etc., it is a difficult thing to do that, is to be very clear about why they need to do that, given that there are still some unknowns, because we don't know if the virus is going to mutate 
and when the next booster is going to be required or how long they're going to have to carry on wearing masks or whether it's a good idea to go to a concert when people are not wearing masks and do you do you how do you make that decision and we're asking people to be epidemiologists in their own lives right when even the epidemiologists themselves can't be sure of what's going on so it's a very difficult situation i guess all we can do is give individual advice based on the context in which somebody is coming to to seek that advice much more difficult to stand on a stage and talk about what's good for everybody mm-hmm. is that your sense yeah absolutely is each person's risk tolerance each person's you know wants and needs is going to be different and so uh, th- there really isn't like a one size fits all advice and that can be really that can be really frustrating I think any physician who has tried to look at clinical guidelines for how to treat anything, you know, you'll see these like complex decision trees where if this, then that, and it, it just goes on and on and on for, you know, hundreds of pages, at least in oncology, it can sometimes go on for, for, for that long. And part of that is because there really isn't a one size fits all. It really is okay for, for this situation, you do X, for this situation, you do Y. And you know, for the for the average person, for the average citizen, it can be very difficult thinking like, okay, well, should I wear a mask? Should I not wear a mask? Am I taking vaccines away from other people if I get a booster or not? Should I get the booster? It's available to me. So, you know, should I do that? You know, I really want to go to this concert. I've been cooped up for two years. <laughs> should I go to this concert? Should I go to the Super Bowl? That kind of thing. And that's very difficult because you're weighing, you know, not just risk to yourself, but you're also weighing risk to the people in your household, to the other people you might come in contact with, you know, all these other factors. And that's a lot for people to think about. It's a lot for anyone to think about, you know, like you said, the epidemiologists who are, you know, even they are having you know, some difficulty kind of making those calculations and are asking these people who don't know. And so um, a lot of times people just go, okay, you know what, I'm just going to do what I want. They just kind of, you know say, you know, it's too much. I'm just not going to, I'm just going to do what I want. And then you have other people who go the other way and say, you know, I'm not going to go out and do anything. I'm always going to be wearing a mask. I'm going to do, and then you have you know, people kind of in the middle. And so, so it is very difficult for people to make a decision and to figure out what do I do. And so I think just you know, practicing some self-compassion, it's okay to make a mistake. It's okay if you do something and then realize after the fact, oh, whoops, maybe I shouldn't have done that. It's okay. We're all just trying to figure this out together. And we're all going to make mistakes and nobody's going to be perfect. And that's okay. That's something I try and uh, try and do with cognitive behavioral therapy is try and help people challenge those self-critical thoughts and you know, experience self-compassion instead, which again, I acknowledge is not easy. So I think that approach might be helpful as well as just acknowledging that, okay, we're all just doing the best we can we're going to make mistakes. It's okay if we make mistakes. Just keep trying to do the best you can. Yes, bad things happen even to those who are ultra fit, have eaten all the right things, never smoked a cigarette, because that's what life is about. Exactly. It's about, you know, you can reduce your risk, but you can't guarantee 100% it's not going to happen. So, you know, 
not like you're bringing this on yourself or anything like that. It's nothing like that. It's you do what you can, you know, you reduce the risk as much as you can. And sometimes things happen and you just, when that happens, you just figure out how to cope with it. Um, but yes, exactly. And nobody's to blame. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, um, that reminds me, this is completely unrelated to healthcare, but one thing I used to say, you know, especially to my parents when I was a kid was that it doesn't matter who's to blame. <laughs> uh, you know, it doesn't matter whose fault it was. It's still your responsibility to help fix the problem. <laughs> so maybe my parents actually said it to me and then I started saying it back to them. So <laughs> I was a very interesting child, by the way. <laughs> Uh, but it, it, it's that approach. It's like, let's not worry about, you know, sometimes it's not helpful to focus on the blame and who's to blame for this. Sometimes it's more important to focus on, okay, how do we fix the problem? How do we solve the problem? What is the state of the world? What are the potential solutions? You may have been an interesting child, but you are an extraordinarily compassionate uh, human being, Celine Jones. It's, I try. It's been, a, it's been a joy spending time with you. A lot of wisdom in what you say and many, many useful reflections for us all. Thank you. Yes, happy to be here. Happy to happy to speak with you. It's been a joy uh, speaking with you as well. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.